Listener Production. Hello, it's Dan Fran here. You are listening to The Briefing. And in today's show, we're talking about the big rule shakeup that's hitting the cosmetic surgery and injectables industry on July 1. Every patient undergoing cosmetic surgery needs to be screened for concerns about their body image, in particular a condition called body dysmorphic disorder, which is technically a mental illness where people view themselves very differently to the way they actually are. That's right. From tomorrow, GP referrals, psychological assessments, cooling off periods, they are all the new requirements that will be coming into effect for anyone wanting a bit of a nip and a tux, breast implants, injectables, even laser treatments. So Katrina Blowers has the lowdown on what those changes are and why influencers and even some cosmetic surgeons actually are warning that some of these changes could spell trouble. That is our briefing topic straight after the headlines. It is Friday, the 30th of June, the last day of the financial year. Merry Christmas, I guess, Antoinette Latouf. <laughs> yeah, I reckon it's Merry Christmas to accountants. So, Jan, I'm a little bit obsessed with this story and I have been following it closely as it continues to develop and it involves former New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian. And it turns out that she's now considering a possible legal challenge after ICAC's corruption finding against her. So Berejiklian has said in a statement her legal team was examining ICAC's report and that she maintains she's always, and to quote, worked my hardest in the public interest and that nothing in this report demonstrates otherwise. So yesterday, ICAC made findings of serious corrupt conduct against Berejiklian and former Liberal MP Daryl Maguire, who was her partner at the time, which wasn't disclosed. And ICAC found she breached the public's trust in 2016 and 2017 by awarding money to projects in Maguire's electorate. And that's all without disclosing their romantic relationship. Um, but many would be asking, Jan, like, does this mean criminal charges are going to be laid? Well, no, there won't be any criminal charges laid. That's not a recommendation that the ICAC has made. And one of the reasons for that is because an ICAC operates very differently to a court. So um, within the kind of ICAC mm. system, a witness is compelled to give evidence. That basically means if you're in the box, you're asked a question, you have to answer it. A court is very different. You don't have to actually answer any questions. You don't have to necessarily appear in the box at all. So a lot of the evidence that was collected during the ICAC can't really be collected in the same way in a criminal trial, which is one of the reasons that, that um, you know, a criminal trial hasn't been recommended. Well, I reckon in a court that usually matters, but it's pretty underestimated in all of this, the court of public opinion is still very much in favour of the former Premier. So I was reading comments under articles um, on, gosh, all the mediums, you know, Instagram and Facebook and even Twitter. And usually when you go into the comments section, it's where people are vile and they say awful, awful thing. But I was, I don't know, I would say surprised. I was surprised to learn there is still a lot of love for the Premier. There's still a lot of people rooting for her who I don't know whether they believe the tragic love story angle or that she's just been wrongly targeted. So just despite ICAC's finding, I was just, uh, yeah, I was like, wow, people, a lot of people still seem to love Gladys. 
I mean, I wonder if that is any hang up of COVID because she was such a ubiquitous, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm just going to be a, a New South Welsh person just for the minute. You know, she was just mm. so in our face if you lived in New South Wales during the uh, coronavirus pandemic in the same way that all of the premieres were just these daily features in our lives. I wonder if, if people have sort of remembered back to that time um, and thought of the way that she steered us through the pandemic in, in certain instances. Uh, it could be a number of things. You're a very brave woman to wade through the comments section of anything, mind you. Um, <laughs> meanwhile, here is a, uh, a wee update on a slightly related story, I guess, that federal ICAC that was, uh, you know, toing and froing between the government and the opposition for years. Is it happening? Is it not happening? Is it happening? It's happening, people. A national anti-corruption watchdog is finally up and running as of today. And that marks the first time in Australian history that we've had an independent body investigating corruption at a federal government level. So there you go. Watch out, federal parliamentarians. And the federal court has heard that Ben Robert Smith has agreed to pay the legal costs on an indemnity basis following his failed defamation proceedings dating back to March 2020. What that means is that he will foot the bill for both sides of this very long and very expensive court battle. Action was launched by the war veteran himself over several news articles. Uh, that was dismissed last month. Now, the matter is set to return to court in September. Mmm, a very high price on that uh, entire legal saga. Yeah, and that high price, Jan, is estimated to be $25 million. So that's for both the former soldier and the media company's legal fees. But um, Ben Robert Smith was filmed leaving the offices of a bankruptcy lawyer in Perth on on Thursday morning. So I guess watch this space. And I do think, I do think it's so important just to give a another little reminder to people that Robert Smith brought on this whole court action. So he thought his reputation was damaged by the initial articles. And I reckon his reputation is mm, probably worse off now. And he's got a lovely little bill to pay. Over to the UK now and the country's asylum seeker plan, which has sort of drawn these parallels with Australia's offshore processing system, has been deemed unlawful. So the UK uh, was planning on sending asylum seekers to Rwanda and the PM there, Rishi Sunak, was sort of championing this idea as a core policy of his quote-unquote stopping the boats policy. But in a vote of two to one, three senior judges in the Court of Appeal ruled that Rwanda couldn't be treated as a safe third country for resettlement because there would be this real risk that people sent to Rwanda would be returned to their home countries where they face persecution and other sort of inhumane treatment. The PM there, though, has, well, he said that he's vowed to appeal the decision. Lots of parallels with Australia, though, Antoinette. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not by coincidence. Alexander Downer, who worked uh, probably for most of his career with the Howard government, was over there advising. So, but thankfully, the UK's stop the boats policy isn't working like ours did. And yes, of course, when Sunak promised to stop the boats, um, it was super familiar to us because we remembered 
the policy, which is still underway, unfortunately. Um, but that also helped former PM Tony Abbott win the election about a decade ago. But th- I think the good news here is that the Navy in the UK have said, no, we're not doing this. We're not going to turn back the boats. So, you know, I dare say a, a Navy with a, with a bit of a heart or a Navy that's seen how this has played out abroad. The other hold up is that the UK is a member of the European Court of Human Rights. So that way it is actually held to an international human rights standard. So we know that here in Australia that we breach international human rights law and um, that it's frowned upon and every major human rights body uh, around the world has condemned our offshore processing and turning back the boats. But we aren't really obliged in the way that the UK is because of that membership to the ECHR. And a little bit of space history has been made today. Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic has made its first commercial space flight with paying customers on board, blasting off from New Mexico overnight. Three, two, one, release, release, release. And the very good news is it has safely returned to Earth. Okay, congratulations, Richard. You get to join the space tourism race with Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk because, you know, the world needed another billionaire getting out there, getting into space. If you would like a seat on Virgin Galactic's commercial space flight, you can expect to pay $450,000 for one. Um, doesn't sound hugely appealing to me, but there are, I'm sure that there are people who are very, very keen to do that. Tony, are you one of them? No, but I do reckon there are some Taylor Swift fans who are annoyed that they missed out on tickets and were prepared to pay anything that now want a different sort of thrill. <laughs> I don't know if they've got $450,000, but hey, I'm not making any judgments on uh, on Taylor Swift fans. Look, I got to say this this felt a bit weird this story because it's like I don't know, should we be doing adventures now a week or so after the Titan sub? Mm. Oh, let's not go into any risky crafts of any kind and and into hostile environments. At least this one came back. That's true. At least this one came back indeed. All right, not coming back, me and you. Katrina's (laughs) up next talking the changes to the cosmetic surgery industry and injectables. Did you know Australians spend over a billion dollars on cosmetic procedures every year? According to the Cosmetic Physicians College of Australasia, this spend has been creeping up year on year since 2016. And that figure only accounts for the non-surgical stuff. So we're talking injectables, things like sculpting and laser treatments. If you want to dive into the figures around facelifts, tummy tucks, breast augmentation, well, that all costs a lot more. So the spend overall is likely to be even bigger. We have other figures estimated around 10% of Australians fess up to having had something done. That's quite a bit. So a big shake-up of the cosmetic industry that's coming into effect on July 1, which we're about to get the lowdown on, is potentially going to affect a lot of people. Dr David Morgan is a specialist plastic surgeon who's been working with the Government Advisory Board and the industry about what these new guidelines mean and how they might impact you if you're thinking of a freshen up. 
Dr. David Morgan, thank you so much for joining us on the briefing. What impact will all these new guidelines have? From the 1st of July this year, the two biggest things that are coming in from that date are a change to what are called the guidelines for those that practice in cosmetic surgery, but also changes to the guidelines of those who advertise in cosmetic surgery, which is probably the most challenging one, but they're both designed to be part of a large suite of changes to help protect the public. So we've got some changes to guidelines for cosmetic surgery, but also cosmetic procedures. Can you talk us through how the two are treated differently under the guidelines? Cosmetic surgery is considered anything where you are penetrating or cutting or piercing beneath the skin. But for cosmetic surgery procedures, which is really injectables and other skin treatments, resurfacing, laser, and so on, are being treated slightly differently because of how the medical regulators view the risk with regards to those two classes of intervention and also the proceduralists or doctors, nurses, surgeons who can be involved in giving that care. The biggest change really is in the cosmetic surgery guidelines. Firstly, every patient seeing a proceduralist or surgeon for cosmetic surgery will require a referral from their GP. Now, that has not normally been the case. People could seek cosmetic care independently, and that came about because we know that most people don't go via their GP to seek cosmetic surgery. They seek information about this from other sources. But the medical board has felt that getting an appropriate medical history and having the patient speak to someone who is not going to be delivering their cosmetic surgery initially was a wise move in terms of increasing patient safety. The other thing is that they now need to be seen twice before anybody can commit to having an operation so that there is more time for them to consider their choice and for the doctor or proceduralist or surgeon to evaluate the patient. There now has to be a waiting period from the moment that everyone has agreed it's appropriate to go ahead and that waiting period is now a week before you can even talk about setting a date and certainly before you can even talk about putting down a deposit on any of this sort of service. And then the other thing that is now mandated is that every patient undergoing cosmetic surgery needs to be screened for concerns about their body image, in particular a condition called body dysmorphic disorder, which is technically a mental illness where people view themselves very differently to the way they actually are. David, who does that screening, that psychological screening? Is it the GP or the cosmetic surgeon? So the way the guidelines are written is that it's up to the cosmetic surgeon or plastic surgeon to perform that assessment, which we have argued is outside the scope of our training to do a full psychological assessment on a patient. But screening patients and choosing appropriate patients for this sort of intervention has long been part of plastic surgery training. But we're certainly not trained psychologists or psychiatrists where if you do detect these worrisome conditions, that's the sort of treatment that they need. They need to see one of those specialists. All right. So that's with cosmetic surgery. What about cosmetic procedures like Botox and fillers and lasers and and that kind of thing? Yeah. So there's no requirement for a GP referral to go and seek that sort of treatment. Um, There's certainly no requirement to be seen twice before you have the treatment, but it is beholden upon the person who is giving the treatment to screen you for your psychological suitability. What's also changed is that every time one of these, what's called um, restricted or 
inside scheduled drugs is going to be injected, then the physician, the doctor, needs to see the patient. So it's going to make it very difficult for those practices that are set up where nurses do a lot of the injectables for them. That's so interesting. So do you know whether or not that GP consult needs to be done face-to-face or can it be done via Zoom? Zoom or telehealth is certainly um, appropriate for the GP referral if it's with your usual GP in particular. And of course, one of the two consultations that need to be performed before having a cosmetic surgery operation can also be performed via Zoom or video, but at least one of them has to be in person so that a proper physical examination and assessment of the patient can take place. There's no stipulation as to which one has to happen first or second. They just provide two different opportunities for discussion. One of the concerns that we've expressed and the medical board is certainly aware of is that now that there is this requirement to receive a GP referral, and to be honest, a lot of young people don't have a GP, that they're just going to seek uh, effectively a quick online referral through filling in a quick questionnaire or receiving a referral from someone that they are unfamiliar with, which is sort of defeating the purpose of what the medical board is hoping to achieve by having people get a referral. Oh, yeah. And then the whole burden of whether that person is in a psychologically great position to have this treatment or this surgery done rests on you guys, the surgeons. Not only that, but the burden of having to perform that um, GP referral is now putting extra strain on limited resources in the general practice sector. Everyone knows that there's a shortage of GPs, that it's very hard to get in and see somebody. And by imposing this requirement in the cosmetic surgery space, we've estimated there could be up to an extra 200,000 GP referrals or consultations required in the next 12 months. Oh, wow. That's a huge number. Let's talk about the new advertising guidelines that are being brought in as part of this. They ban certain words from being used. Yes, the new guidelines are actually quite stringent and are going to be very difficult for practices to meet, certainly within the timeframe before July 1. But you're right, you can't use certain phrases or any sort of advertising that might minimise the potential risk of undergoing this sort of surgery, might overpromise on results or give misleading ideas about results. So you certainly can't use common phrases like mummy makeover or boob job or nose job. We are now required to use the proper medical terms for those sorts of things. We have to be very careful about how we describe our services and our practice and our care. We can't use things like world-leading or world-renowned. You can't use stock photos on your websites anymore because it could be implied that those models are patients of that practice and that their wonderful look is due to the services from that practice. Uh, If you're going to use before and after photos, they need to be in exactly the same lighting and exactly the same clothing so that you can make direct comparisons. When advertising your services as the doctor, you have to use your full title, your type of registration and your registration number so that people have an opportunity to look you up and see who you are. So the regulators have already declared that they're going to be actively monitoring this and have already started the process. I'm certainly aware of quite a number of practices and surgeons within the industry have already been audited and the majority have found to be non-compliant already. 
I know you just spoke about the concern that it could really clog up our already overburdened uh, health system. Are there also concerns that young people in particular might head overseas where it's not so safe? Yeah, certainly in our discussion with the regulators, we've made it very clear that there are likely to be several unintended consequences of these sorts of changes. The first thing is it's putting a burden on practices, both the general practice and the cosmetic surgery practice in terms of changing their processes and actually changing things that have been shown to have worked very effectively already. You know, what we like to describe as different models of care, you don't specifically have to follow every single guideline that's now come out to be practicing ethical and responsible medicine. And and that's one of our complaints about what they're trying to impose here. The second thing is if you make the hurdles too high for people to seek care locally, If you make it too challenging to get a GP referral, if you make it awkward for someone to see a surgeon twice, particularly if they come from a long way away, and we're talking about rural and remote patients here in particular, then you are going to make it more attractive to go down an easier path. And that sort of thing is potentially going overseas for care, which would be a very poor outcome from these changes because it is very common for care to be substandard in other countries. Now, this sounds like the, like quite a big shake-up, but I understand that there are even more changes on the way. Well, that's right. Well, everyone's focusing on the guidelines which are coming in on the 1st of July, but there are a couple of other things that have happened in the cosmetic surgery space in the last six months or so that are also going to have an impact on things and in many ways we think might be better. The biggest change is that for a long time the term surgeon has not been protected, which is why Doctors who are not actually trained surgeons could call themselves cosmetic surgeons because that term was not what's called a protected title in our legislation. But thankfully, after a very long campaign over many, many years, the health ministers have all agreed that protecting the title surgeon is important for patient safety. And so there is now legislation that would restrict the title surgeon to only those that have completed either a surgical training programs through the College of Surgeons or have completed obstetrics and gynecology training or have completed ophthalmology training. So only those that have completed appropriate government-approved training programs to become a proper surgeon can now call themselves a surgeon. And those that were not previously surgeons calling themselves cosmetic surgeons will no longer be able to do so. That was specialist plastic surgeon Dr David Morgan and the advisory board which set up these new guidelines has agreed to review them, how they're working in around 12 months or so and to see whether they have any unintended consequences. I think some of these might be a bit tricky to enforce but we would love to hear from you guys if you come up against any interesting situations in the next few months, make sure you hit us up on social media with your stories because I think there could be a follow-up briefing for us here in the future. Well, that is it for our Monday to Friday show. As always on a Saturday, the weekend briefing with Jamila Rizvi. Jam Jam, who have you got this weekend? Hi team. I am so thrilled that I got to speak with the inimitable Dami Im for this weekend's episode. Dami, of course, we all got to know on X Factor back in 2013 where she got to that victory in a way that 
Oh, it feels so cliche to say captured the nation's hearts, but I feel like she did. And then, of course, she represented our country at the Eurovision Song Contest, getting us a second, which is the best that we've ever done in that competition. Pretty impressive for little old Australia, not actually part of Europe. But Dami and I, in our chat, we, we went way back before all of that fame and, and recognition. And we spent a lot of time diving into Dami's childhood and her experiences growing up in South Korea and then emigrating to Australia and her piano practice. And when she first realised that that singing was something that maybe she might be good at and that she set about trying to be better at in the most disciplined and process-driven way. Uh, if you are a fan of Dami's or if you're just a fan of, of music, this interview is something I think you'll find really fascinating. I'm sure we will. Jam, you get all the good people to chat to as well. Damn, I'm a bit jealous. That is coming to you tomorrow on the Weekend Briefing Jam's chat with Dami Im. Make sure you catch it. Meanwhile, that's all from us. Thank you so much to all of our producers and team working behind the scenes. Thank you so much to you guys for listening and we will catch you on Monday. Have a great weekend. Listener.